0: Life Audio Hey, welcome to Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Senor. This is the fifth episode of my new series on how to overcome spiritual malaise, fatigue, sluggishness, failure. It's called Power to Change, P2C. Are you experiencing church fatigue, religion fatigue, Christian fatigue, Have you left institutional church in a huff altogether? Welcome. This might be just what you're looking for. This might be the start of something new for you and uh, uh, your spiritual life maybe take off a little bit. That would be a good thing. Is this a new list of things to do so that your spiritual walk would take off? No, this is no shame here at all. Uh, Your job as a disciple of Jesus has never been about how much you do or do not do. I know you've been told that, and your brain it seems to think that. So just listen and let this sink in. Here we go. Discipleship is not about becoming more like Jesus. I mean, right? Not directly. I mean, How do you do that anyway? He's Jesus. You're not. Right? What muscle group do you use? That's been the problem, a big part of the problem, and why we fall short so often, and there's so much shame in the church. And no judgment. Instead, discipleship, the spiritual walk, is about becoming more dependent upon jesus and his spirit those are two different paths right Uh, curious beginning to make a little sense and look here in the united states we hate being dependent submission is a four-letter word we want to know what we're to do and then let us prove our worth to god and to others you see the not so subtle problem uh, and for church, we don't pick elders and church leaders who are examples of great dependence upon Jesus. We want performance. We want leaders who will tell us what to do. So becoming like Jesus and dependence upon Jesus, uh, they're different, but they're not mutually exclusive. It's a matter of order. If you become more dependent upon Jesus, you are going to become more like Jesus. But if you try to become more like Jesus you're gonna grow even more independent. And so the modern Western church. So back to Paul and Galatians five. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We'll take a short break for our sponsors and come right back. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. So just how powerful and subconscious is our midbrain and its desires and demands? A few years back, a British hospital set up cameras in the pediatrics ward to monitor kids who were considered to be in danger of abuse. Horrific abuse was recorded, not by staff, but by their own parents. Of the 39 infants monitored, 12 had siblings who had previously died unexpectedly so who would do this to a child and their own child? Here's a quote. Superficially, such abusing parents can appear ordinary, frequently charming and attractive people. Psychologically, it's theorized that such abusers crave attention, particularly from the medical establishment after covertly injuring their children. Yep these parents typically receive large amounts of sympathy from friends and relatives or strangers whom they often regale with tales of how stressful it is to care for a sickly child Whew. so does the bible address that yeah it does it says that this tendency is far more real than we ever want to admit and maybe different forms and fashions, but there's some similarities too. And in the end, we're going to see that there is good news for us, and by the way, for those parents. Galatians 5.1, Paul writes, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Free from what? So these parents probably weren't aware that they were in part under the control of their deceased Decision-making complex, DDMC, diseased decision-making complex. So this is what sinful natures do. This is what they are. I want us to understand the power involved, the power that is often desperate and overwhelming and subconscious, meaning they don't even know it. See, not only do people do such things, uh, certainly at some level aware that such things are terribly destructive, even to people that at another level they care for but the power deceives their DDMC to make it seem right. They justify their motivations and actions. This is a hidden, overwhelming power. Addict, think of you, that requires another greater power to conquer, and one day at a time. So think about it. Uh, do you think telling the parents to stop it putting them in jail, taking their kids away from them, does that reform them? Does that fix their DDMC? Does that rewire their twisted midbrain? Does that make them need that sympathy less? No, they're addicts who desperately and destructively need sympathy hits from others. That's another form of dopamine hit addict, same as you going after cocaine or porn or gambling. Addicts, addiction, and they can't be fixed by just choosing to stop. Again, prefrontal cortex, they're up against a very powerful motivator. Remember this from Crocodile Dundee? You got a light, buddy? Yeah, sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. That's not a knife. That's a knife. Uh, Here's all I'm saying. No judgment, but, but a lot of addiction counseling is really small knives. We're looking at powers within us, within our flesh, which I am calling our DDMC, and I wonder if most of us go about our daily lives in denial that we have such negative, destructive, insane powers roiling within us, affecting our motivations and decisions, all of us. And not only that, but affecting our emotions. We are at number 14 in Paul's work of the flesh, in the midbrain, drunkenness, batai. It weakens people's rational and moral control over their words and actions. That's from commentator Fung. Peterson says it's uncontrolled and uncontrollable addiction. Divorces appetite from nourishment and forges chains of addiction. Uh, We spoke before about epithumia, the lust desires, the gotta have of that royal out of our flesh at times. It's a combination of thumia, want, and epi, really? So I really want this? It speaks of a powerful, out-of-control need to have this drunkenness, matai, from Paul's list of works of the flesh, Galatians 5, is a pattern of over-the-top demanding of something like alcohol or drug or food, sympathy, uh, attention, matai, is serial epithumia. It's very powerful, but it's still... A little switchblade in comparison to Croc Dundee huge knife, the power of the spirit to quench Matai's power. Though Matai and day-to-day Greek parlance refer specifically to substance abuse, it is no doubt on the list to represent any addiction. Addictions are harmful to us. We all have them. Some are more obvious than others. Whether they are emotional, physical, chemical, mental, much of their control and power comes from the deep fallen humanity's need to feel right about ourselves, our world, our relationships. I am not in any way discounting chemical addiction and the need for counseling and drugs at times, but in addition to science, there is something else going on related to our disease decision-making complexes. But our freedom is not complete. Working against it is the powerful force of addiction. Psychologically, addiction uses up desire. It's like a psychic malignancy sucking our life energy into specific obsessions and compulsions, leaving less and less energy available for other people and other pursuits. Spiritually, addiction is a deep-seated form of idolatry. The objects of our addictions become our false gods. These are what we worship, what we attend to, where we give our time and energy instead of love. Addiction then displaces and supplants God's love as the source and object of our deepest true desire. It is, as one modern spiritual writer has called it, a counterfeit of religious presence. Addiction exists wherever Persons are internally compelled to give energy to things that are not their true desires. To define it directly, addiction is a state of compulsion, obsession, and preoccupation that enslaves a person's will and desires. We succumb because the energy of our desire becomes attached, nailed to specific behaviors, objects, or people. Attachment then is the process that enslaves, desires, and creates the state of addiction. That's Gerald May from his great book, Addiction and Grace. So in my terminology, we become internally, subconsciously compelled, in spite of our prefrontal cortexes, desires, and choices to give energy and attention to our disease decision-making complex, DDMC. You know, we may choose to push back on those days of awareness, Um, but that doesn't rewire my deeply entrenched inner working models. My actions are the fruit of inner twisted wiring. It must be addressed. Those DDMC's are still there. To be addicted to anything is to be controlled, to be a slave, to be in covenant with a compulsion that limits your humanity, that robs you from being you. All addictions make you less you. So, Are we just replacing your addiction with a higher relationship with God? Not not exactly. A relationship with God is a romance that has the power to rewire our midbrain's models. Addictions are at odds with that intimacy. What are some attachment addictions that we can be drunk with? alcohol, drug substances, identity, right? How others treat you, speak of you, act towards you. We can be addicted to performance, responsibility. We can be addicted to success, to winning. We can be addicted to control. Um, Depression hits when things are out of control. We can be addicted to appearance, eating disorders, makeup, clothes, hair, face, weight. We could be addicted to anxiety, to stresses. We could be addicted to religion, right? I need to be seen as right by God. Uh, so I'm empowered to look right at all costs. I can be addicted to needing to do and be right by my own efforts, by my own terms, independent. We all struggle with this drunkenness. Matai, in one form or another, Our DDMC's. We are addicted to being seen as right and doing right things as part of our nature. When we do right things and are recognized for it, it's an addictive hit. And God's grace then is the forced application to my DDMC that I am right because of what Jesus did, strictly due to what Jesus did, his work on my behalf. So when I get that from Jesus and the cross, when that happens, my DDMC's need for to be right and feeling right through substances, good works, and it's satiated a little bit, it's diminished a little bit. But if I don't have such a God-sourced grace happening right now, my DDMC must desperately soothe my conscience through good works. Prayer, tithing, church attendance, devotion, catechism, giving to the poor, serving on committees, or self-medication, addiction. All right, this is a good place to take a break. We will be right back. Here's Gerald May again. To be alive is to be addicted. To be alive and addicted is to stand in the need of grace. One of the ways to determine if it is an addiction is to merely try to stop it. Go cold turkey. And note any withdrawal symptoms, note any depression, void, discomfort. Uh, look for, or better have a close friend look for, powerful, overwhelming, instant coping mechanisms that puke up. All right? Coping strategies, very, very powerful, automatic to some extent in everybody's context. Try not to do these things for one week. Rationalization. So what is that? I need to do this. Let me explain because I have had a hard day. I don't need to do this. I just want to do this. I'm in control. You see, I can stop any time. Blame shifting or justification. Uh, the, the idea that comes most naturally to man, as as if from his very nature, is the idea of innocence. We're all exceptional cases. We all want to appeal against something. Each of us insists on being innocent at all cost, even if he has to accuse the whole human race and heaven itself. That's Albert Camus. <laughs> Delaying tactics. I'll stop, but not today. I'm going to stop tomorrow. This is just not a good day. How about isolation? Well, I look okay from a distance. I don't need to be reminded of my addiction from others. A quick, shallow repentance. Uh, worldly sorrow, right? I quickly say, how bad a sinner I am. I cry. I beat my chest. I publicly come clean. But I haven't really seen just how bad my sin really is or the harm that it's caused. And I've done nothing for my DDMC. Collusion. Finding people who actually unknowingly support the addiction under the guise of helping the addict. Uh, people who buy the justification, the rhetoric, the lies, right? Those are great people to have around for addicts. I'm joking. We can trade guilt for equally powerful pity. So I'm, I'm such a ter- terrible person. Pity me, right? But there's no real power there to transform us, our DDMC. Filling up my energies with good things. You know, good works, feeding the poor, it's just another shill. The need to be and be seen as right, right? You know, joining the Peace Corps. Well, so what do we addicts do in order to be free at last? The natural predator for all of the works of the flesh, including our powerful energy towards addiction, is grace. And by grace, I mean God, by his own hand, making me believe the fourfold gospel is true for me right now. It's a God-sourced grace. It's the power of God to make me feel the righteousness of Christ now. now remember, righteousness, right, justification, is ultimately me being right within myself and being right with God, feeling God's love for me, uh, right? And at that moment, I feel right, whole, adored, empowered. But this is a power. This, is the, this takes a power. Uh, here's Hirsch. Almost without exception, the men and women who come to my counseling office for help with their addictions come bathed in self-contempt, professing certainty of God's disapproval and alienation. I discovered early in my works with addicts that my passionate pleas about God's forgiveness and unconditional love only elicited further cries of contempt. Look, God's grace, God's source grace must be a power to penetrate into self-contempt of addicts. And so when God's grace comes upon an addict, ravishes his or her disease, decision-making complex, the addict miraculously, deeply, really begins to believe the four things that Jesus did for him and are actually true. He or she believes that all of his or her shortcomings, idolatries, all of the harm that have been caused in their addictive behaviors were all tried 2,000 years ago. He or she was found terribly guilty, and Jesus took the penalty. And so God looks at them right now without any judgment. Second, they're imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus not only did right, he was always right, and that being right is shoved down the addict's insane throat, beyond the thick outer defenses. And when that occurs, they begin to actually feel right, right about themselves, right about God. It's a very powerful thing for people who come bathed in self-contempt, professing certainty of God's disapproval and alienation. This power is by nature bigger than the power within the addict. Uh, Their natural self-contempt loses some control. So imagine your addiction being a huge thing inside of you like a cancerous tumor, the size of a grapefruit. It's powerful, destructive, has a life of its own. And so by faith, you, Jesus follower can go to the father and ask for grace, the power for you to believe what Jesus did for you today. He gives you the power to be able to see you the way he sees you. And through Christ, he loves you as you are. He can't love you anymore or any less. That's a huge natural predator uh, to the power of addiction. So now imagine that grapefruit-sized power being forcibly shrunk to the size of a grape or a lemon. It might still be there, but it's wildly disempowered at the moment. And the, the point is that it has no control over you then, or, or less. The other two things that Jesus did for you, three, you have been given the greatest honor of your life. You are an adopted, full, card-carrying son or daughter of God. There's nothing you do here that comes anywhere close to adding to that permanent honor, far larger than winning the Super Bowl or becoming a homecoming queen or president or spelling bee champ, all rolled into one. You and I didn't earn it. It was given to us. And for the Holy Spirit, access to all the fruit, all the power, the fullness of God, God God-sourced faith, the power of God to believe all of this stuff, the plerophoria, John Calvin calls it, the confidence that God loves me. This works. And without this God-sourced grace and the fourfold power of the gospel, humanity, can achieve something with great effort, but it's a David and Goliath thing. It's going to be a knife fight with a tiny little switchblade. Understanding will not deliver us from addiction, but it will, I hope, help us appreciate grace. Grace is most powerful force in the universe. It can transcend repression, addiction, and every other internal or external power that seeks to oppress the freedom of the human heart. Grace is where our hope Lies. That's Gerald May again. Grace is difficult, impossible to control. It means to finally admit, again, that I am not in control. I do not have all the answers. I don't even have all the questions. I must trust and submit to another, God himself. In today's parlance, it's hard work to do nothing, to choose to just submit, to receive, to repent of our coping mechanisms and wailing on our beds But the only thing that works, that counts, is you and I holding up empty hands like the ground holds up empty hands to receive rain. And for us to receive our right, being right within ourselves and being right with God and others. It's not what we do or how we do it. It's receiving stuff. The real right stuff. That This gives grace a forced application of Jesus' righteousness upon your DDMC. And that can only feel not right but it's freedom jesus died to set you free and we experience that again and again so i want to remind you of some tools that can help first we have the online spiritual journey called the dance -dance www.the-dance.org there is a minimal fee small fee for this two-hour online experience and you're going to thank us in it, we remind you of the stunning honor and joy of being invited into the celestial dance, Marriage and Redemption, with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Like I said, it's online, it's accessible, it's sophisticated, relevant, confidential. Uh, you can do any smart device. We'll even give you a chance, this is interesting, to get justice for, from your nasty, critical inner voice. Very creative and fun, powerful. You might just dance a little. Here's the testimony of one participant. I will be honest in that I was hopeful, yet skeptical. I have been going to church, celebrate recovery, counseling, even taking medication for anxiety and depression, begging God to help me connect the dots with his love and overcoming shame. I read articles, listened to podcasts, read books, and have been working hard to overcome shame and feeling like a loser due to memories and reminders of things done to me and things I've done, knowing It is not all on me is comforting. He takes me as I am, and the lies are lies. Thank you. And then, of course, there is the very important simple and cluttered gospel. Say it aloud word for word, twice a day for 45 days. And and more than twice a day if you're struggling and relapsing. No shame. I've got your back. I believe in you, uh, or better, his spirit in you. So sit back, just listen to this. Or even better, say it aloud along with me. Jesus follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart as much as the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now now? Simple. Good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the Spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. As you're saying this twice a day, make sure you note any changes, any changes that other people note. Uh, could be little ones. Are you feeling a little less stressed, a little less depressed, a little less anxious, a little more loved by God, a little more right? Are you, if you're an addict, are you seeking to self-medicate a little less often, right? Are you smiling more? And remember to say the simple and cluttered gospel twice a day for 45 days. Let me know what you think, what you're noticing, changes, what's happening. Bill at gospel-app.com. Love to hear from you. You can get this in bookmark form from gospelrant.com or gospel-app.com. Get a bunch of them. Put them all over your home, your workplace. Give them to your uh, Bible study group, your family, your friends. They'll thank you. I'm writing a book on overlooked and underappreciated women of the Old Testament. It's fascinating, a must-read. You need to hear their stories. If you want to know when it's published, get on the list, bill at gospel-app.com. Make sure that you follow this podcast. It really is important to us. Pass the word on to friends and families. That can make a huge difference, Um, right? All right. And by the way, if you're an addict, stay in your 12-step group and, and counselor. Keep listening. Take heart. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.